You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Some of you are all too familiar with that idea that life is short and that time is uncertain. And yesterday it was brought home to me as, of course, we recognized the passing of one of my personal heroes and men that I admire and, and look up to, Ronald Reagan. And that should be, come as no surprise to any of you. If you've been here for years, you know that he's one of those historical figures that I just look to. I just admire the man. And yesterday, even in the midst of watching all of the coverage of it, I was just reminded once again of how life is so short. 93 years old, he passed away and 93 years seems like a long time to those of us who are on my side of the 50-year mark. But even when you're barely into your 30s as I am, 93 is only two more of my already lived lifetimes. I'm a third of 93. And that really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? We live very temporal, very short, very periodic lives. And everything that we do is just fits into this sliver of time in which we exist. And every time I go to a funeral, I'm reminded again that life is short. And all of our experiences and everything we do and everything we say and everything that we accomplish all just gets compressed into this little wedge of time that really in the scope of things means nothing. And because we're temporal beings and because life is short and because we only have this little sliver of time then when something bad happens to us, we tend to try and interpret it in light of this little sliver of time. Something bad happens to you and you instantly look for some good to come out of it, I'm sure. But if that good doesn't materialize within 30 seconds, you begin to doubt whether or not any good can possibly come of this. Why does this happen to me? How can God allow this to happen? What did I do to deserve this? And we try and interpret everything that happens to us in light of this little sliver of time that you and I possess in this thing called eternity. That's not the best way to go about things. That, that is, See, our problem is that we lack the Joseph perspective. Remember Joseph, Joseph's perspective? He was loved by his father, hated by his brothers. So his 11 brothers decided that they were going to kill him. They came up with a better plan. There's no money in that, so they decided to sell him into slavery instead. So a band of Ishmaelites come passing through and they sell them to the Ishmaelites. Well, they're on their way to Egypt. And they're done with Joseph. And one might rightly ask, how can any good possibly come out of a situation like that? Here's a, here's a boy who is obeying his father's orders out in the desert, checking on his brother as he shows up. Unbeknownst to him, they've hatched this whole plot to, to kill him. Thankfully, by the providence of God, he's spared and he gets sold into slavery. Well, that's marginally better than getting killed. So now he's off on his way to Egypt. What good can possibly come from that? And then the Ishmaelites sell him to Potiphar. And when he's in Egypt as a slave, a household slave, and one might rightly ask, what good can come from that? Joseph never asked that question, never doubted it. And you know the story is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison. Now folks, that is as low as it can possibly go. And Joseph may have rightly asked, what good can come from this? 
He had never asked that. But years later, when he met his brother, he said, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. That was Joseph's perspective all along. Never doubted the providence, never doubted the sovereignty, never doubted the plan of God. But because of Joseph and all of those bad things that happened to Joseph, God was able to preserve an entire nation in Egypt through a famine and grow that nation from just a few hundred over the course of 400 years to over a million people in Egypt. All because of the bad things, from our perspective, that happened to Joseph. Listen, it was years before Joseph ever saw anything good come of all of that. Years. He was years in Egypt. He was years in Potiphar's house. He was even years in prison. And you and I may not see any good come from the bad things that happen to us, even on this side of eternity. But we have to have the Joseph perspective. Paul had that perspective. You read it in Philippians chapter 1. He's in prison. He's writing to the Philippian church. And he says, now, brethren, I want you to understand that my circumstances have proved to be for the advance, the furtherance of the gospel message. Well, how is it that the chief preacher, the chief apostle, the chief missionary of the church can write the message is being advanced even while I'm in prison? You would think that if you were able to hem him into bars and put him into prison, that that would stop the spread of the message. But Paul says, no, the Christians, word about me is spread throughout everywhere, and the Christians feel more boldness because of what's happening to me. So they preach Christ. Now, some of them were preaching Christ out of strife, They wanted to dig at Paul so they would preach the gospel message knowing that he couldn't preach the message because he was in prison. And they did it out of selfish ambitions. Others did it out of love. But Paul says, as long as Christ is being preached, what do I care? I'll rejoice in it. That's the eternal perspective. My circumstances have proved to be for the furtherance of the gospel message. And Paul was content to sit in prison as long as it took, as long as the message was going forward. I think Peter would have had the same perspective. Last week we left Peter, he was in prison. Now he only stayed in prison one night. He's been in prison for a week in your minds because that was where we left him last week at the end of verse 4 in chapter 4. So that's where we're going to pick it up now. Peter has been thrown into prison, John has been thrown into prison, and they've spent a night in the clinker because they have preached Christ. Now one might rightly ask, what possible good can come from that? I'm convinced that Peter would have said with Paul, My circumstances have proved to be for the furtherance of the message. I think Peter would have said that. Why do I say that? What good can possibly come from being arrested? What good can possibly come from being put into prison? What good can possibly come from spending all night there and then being brought up on trial the next day? What good can come from all of that? You know what good came from it? Peter had opportunity to preach to the Sanhedrin. He would have never had that opportunity if he wasn't thrown in prison. You see, folks, even the opposition to the gospel provides opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Even the opposition to the gospel provides opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Peter would have said, my circumstances have proved for the furtherance of the message. If it weren't for his arrest, we would never have this scene in Acts chapter 4 where he has opportunity to preach to the Sanhedrin. It's a court scene. Verses 5 through verse 12 is a scene that takes place, and it's a court scene. So we're going to break the scene down into the prosecution in verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, and then the defense in verses 8 through 12. So the first thing we notice is the prosecution. 
Back in verse 1, it says that Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, these chief priests, the Pharisees and the scribes, came out against them. And they heard that Peter and John were teaching. They didn't like the fact that these untrained Galileans were teaching the people. And they heard the facts of their preaching, or what it was that they were presenting, namely, the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. Now remember, the, the Sadducees don't like that. Because the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in heaven and hell and punishment and reward. They don't believe in spirits or the spirit world. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any of that supernatural stuff. The intervention, the providence, the sovereignty of God, none of that. They denied all of it. So the fact that Peter is preaching the resurrection in Jesus, this gets them infuriated. They're distressed. So they throw them into jail, verse 4. Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. The rulers is a reference to the heads of all of the individual priestly orders. There were 24 of them, and they circulated. You remember I mentioned they rotated in the temple so that one particular group of priests had charge over the temple for that week, and they did this on a rotating basis. Every 24 weeks, that order came up. The people who were the head of those priestly orders were called the rulers. The elders is a reference to the heads of all the tribes and all of the key families in Israel. And the scribes are the are the lawyers, the Pharisees, the experts in the law. And they're all gathered together. This is what was called the Sanhedrin. This was the ruling body of the Jews. This was as high up the Jewish chain of authority as you could get. This was the Jewish Supreme Court. All of the power brokers are here. All of the people who wield power within the Jewish community are here. The the scribes, the lawyers the chief priests and the high priests and all the priestly orders, the whole hierarchical structure of the nation is assembled at the Sanhedrin. And Luke gives us some specific people that were there. Now, if you think that the priests joining forces with the Sadducees to put these two men in prison, if you think that's an interesting combination, look at who specifically Luke says was there. Verse 6, And Annas, the high priest, was there and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. He names specifically four people. Two of them, if you've read the Gospels, probably sound familiar to you. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. John tells us that in his Gospel. Annas was high priest oh, several years before all of these events, and he was high priest for about nine years. Under the crucifixion, uh, at the crucifixion of Christ, Caiaphas was high priest. Annas was his father-in-law and had served as high priest before them. Now there's something interesting about Annas and Caiaphas. In John chapter 18, when Christ was turned over by the Jews to be crucified, they delivered him first, in verse 13 of chapter 18, they delivered him first to Annas. Annas wasn't serving as high priest. Annas turned around and delivered him over to Caiaphas, who was high priest. Now, why in the world is Annas involved in this at all? He's not high priest. He has no official position. What's he doing in all of this? You know who Annas was? He's the guy who moved the levers, pulled the strings. He's the authority behind all of this that's going on. And when they wanted to crucify Christ, they gave him to Annas. Annas turned him over to Caiaphas, who was high priest. Now, Annas had been high priest before that. Now, Caiaphas is high priest. Why is it that Luke calls Annas high priest? You know why that is? Annas wasn't serving as high priest. 
but he had been high priest, and, and really he's at the top of this power pyramid. And so Luke refers to him as the high priest, just like we refer to past presidents as president. President Reagan, President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, those who have served in the past, we still give them that title. They did the same thing with high priests. So even though Annas is not serving as high priest, Caiaphas is, Luke refers to him as such, really to show the power structure that's going on at this trial. So Annas is there, he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Caiaphas had, sorry, Annas had five sons and one grandson who all served as high priest. Five sons and one grandson. Now what does that tell you about the power structure in the religious life of the Jews? Who controlled it? Annas did. He's the one who pulled all of the strings, moved all of the levers. His power as high priest was consolidated in the fact that it never left his family, never left his sons, his son-in-laws, or even his grandchildren for a long period of time. And it's Annas whose fingerprints are all over the crucifixion of Christ. And it's Annas and Caiaphas whose fingerprints are all over Acts chapter 4. They're the ones who are pulling the strings. There are two other people mentioned, Jonathan and Alexander. You notice that? We don't know anything about those two men other than that they were at this trial. We don't know anything else from Scripture. Josephus tells us that Caiaphas, sorry, Annas, had a son named Jonathan, and maybe that's that Jonathan right here. Luke may indicate that when he says all who are of high priestly descent. It could be Annas and Caiaphas and his son John and also Alexander who is also related to Annas in some way. So it's Annas who's at the top of this. It's Annas who turned Christ over to be crucified. It's Annas who orchestrated the whole thing, delivered him over to Caiaphas, and moved these whole events in the crucifixion of Christ. And that's who Peter is standing before. Now what I want you to notice here is the amount of power that is being brought to bear against these two uneducated fishermen. Two uneducated fishermen. And who do they stand before? The Jewish Supreme Court. You do not go any higher up the ladder than that. And Annas is there, Caiaphas is there, John, Alexander, and the whole Sanhedrin is brought to bear against these two little untrained Galilean fishermen. Why? Because they were preaching resurrection in Christ. So, Luke says, they put John, verse uh, 6, Annas and Caiaphas were there, John and Alexander. Verse 7, they had placed them in the center. That is, they put John and Peter in the center of them, and they began to inquire. The Sanhedrin was arranged somewhat like these seats here are arranged, in a semicircle. And there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And the 70 members of the Sanhedrin would gather together, and John and Peter were placed in the middle, and they were placed in a semicircle, all of the 70 seats in a semicircle, so that the members of the Sanhedrin could see each other. And they could send each other little messages. And then before them, down lower than all of those seats, was placed Peter and John. So here they have every reason in the world to be scared. They're standing in front of the most powerful men in their nation, under, of course, the Roman government. They're standing before them. They're standing before their Supreme Court. And it's not a friendly crowd. There's nobody there that they can appeal to if they get a bad sentence. And there's nobody there that is... that is a benevolent to them whatsoever. The Sadducees hate them because they're preaching the resurrection of Christ. So it's a hostile crowd. There's nobody there that they can win over. And they're put right down in the center of that. And it says they began to inquire. And what's the question they asked? By what power or in whose name did you heal this cripple? 
That's what they want to know. By what power or in whose name was this deed done? Because they know that these two little untrained Galilean fishermen don't have power to heal people in and of themselves. So they ask them by whose power. Now here's what is interesting, folks. Do they know whose power they did this miracle in? Do they know whose name they'd worked in? Sure they do. Well, why are they asking that? You know why they're asking that? They want Peter and John to go on record verbally. That's why they're asking it. Tell us whose name. They knew whose name. Peter said in his message, it's by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you well. And what was it that disturbed him? The fact that they were preaching the resurrection in Jesus Christ. They knew whose name. That was not the question. It was no secret. They were giving Peter and John enough rope, hoping, I think, that they would hang themselves. And the cripple is there too. Verse 10, Peter makes reference to the fact that the cripple was standing right beside them during the trial. Verse 14, the Sanhedrin makes reference to the fact that the cripple was there. Now Luke doesn't tell us if the cripple spent the night in jail with Peter and John. He may have. It's his healing that started this whole thing. They may have put the cripple in prison with Peter and John because that was adding to the disruption in the temple. Or maybe they brought the cripple in as defense for Peter and John. Or maybe they were hoping to get some information out of the cripple that would incriminate Peter and John. For whatever reason, they brought this cripple in there as exhibit A. And they're saying, in whose name did you heal this man? Now Peter gives them the name. Before we get to that, I want you to notice what is completely absent from the trial. There's something that is omitted here that they don't bring up that's almost glaring. You know what it is? They don't ask him any questions about the resurrection. Notice that? They don't bring him in and say, look, we heard in the temple you were mentioning something about a resurrection, about life after death and and Jesus being raised. And Tell us, what was that that you were saying? (laughs) They don't want that, do they? Why do they not want them to mention anything about the resurrection? They don't ask them that question. You know why? Because the Sanhedrin is composed not only of Sadducees, but also of Pharisees who believed in a resurrection. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in life after death. And the last thing they want is a mistrial. The last thing they want is a hung jury. The last thing they're expecting or wanting is for Peter and John to say something that would win over this Pharisee element and then the Pharisees would join forces with the apostles because they have an opportunity to get at the Sadducees because they're arch enemies. In Acts chapter 23, this is one of my favorite stories, and we're going to get to this in due time. In Acts chapter 23, the apostle Paul is brought before the same Sanhedrin. And the apostle Paul is being questioned before them, and he perceives that some of them are Sadducees and some of them are Pharisees. Apostle Paul's a quick thinker. So he says to himself, Men and brethren, I am on trial today for the resurrection of the dead. Division. Right amongst the people. Instantly. And all the Pharisees start to argue. And they start defending Paul. We find no nothing wrong with this man. We find no fault in this man whatsoever. What if an angel or a spirit spoke to him? Sadducees can't stand that. So they're on the other side and they're arguing back and forth. And Acts 23 says that the commander took Paul out of the midst of them and put him back in the barracks because they were afraid that this discussion, they were going to tear Paul apart to pieces because they were fighting. They don't want to risk that happening. So the chief priests are wisely just avoiding the whole subject of resurrection. Tell us whose name you did this in. Now what were they expecting Peter to say? Were they expecting that a night in the slammer would cool his jets a little bit? That he would have some time to think about those things? And that 
if they brought him in before the Sanhedrin and arrayed all of these powerful people before him, that Peter would begin to rethink this whole issue of the church and the resurrection? Were they expecting Peter to capitulate, to back down, to backpedal? Were they expecting him to say, you know what, we really were out of line in the temple teaching those things? Really, we shouldn't have mentioned anything like that. There was no resurrection. Let's just forget all of this came. Did they expect that? If they were expecting that, they were sorely disappointed. Because although they don't bring up the subject of the resurrection, Peter does. Look at his defense. And that begins in verse 8. Then Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now this is Peter's fourth sermon in four chapters. Remember, he had a sermon in chapter 1 where he gave an exposition of the Old Testament and the need to fill Judas's office. He had a sermon in chapter 2 where he quoted the Old Testament in reference to what was going on on the day of Pentecost and the resurrection of Christ. He had a sermon in Acts chapter 3 in which he quoted the Old Testament to show who it is that has the power to heal this cripple. And now he's preaching again in Acts chapter 4. So we have four chapters and four sermons from the Apostle Peter. And here in Acts chapter 4 he does the same thing. He quotes the Old Testament and he gives a a message based upon this quotation which is in verse 11 from Psalm 118. So he preaches. And the text says that Peter was filled, and that's passive voice indicating the nature of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, it doesn't mean that you have an ecstatic experience. It doesn't mean that you see lights. It doesn't mean that you lose control of yourself. The filling of the Spirit is basically, in the New Testament, a yielding to the Spirit. As you and I yield ourselves to the Spirit, as we obey the Spirit and obey the Word of God, that dwells in us, and the Spirit fills us. And Peter is just a vessel through which the Spirit of God preaches Christ to the Sanhedrin. He's filled with the Spirit. And all of that is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus said, when they bring you before synagogues and councils and rulers and authorities, don't worry about what you're going to speak or your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And now Peter's experiencing the fulfillment of that. Here he is standing before the synagogue, the Sanhedrin, and he's filled with the Spirit, and his words are perfect. Of course they are, because he's filled with the Spirit. So what he speaks is exactly what the Spirit of God wants him to speak in those circumstances. What is it that he says? I want you to notice two things about his defense. First of all, it was respectful. It was respectful. In verse 8, Peter is filled with the Spirit, says rulers and elders of the people. He addresses them by their title. He addresses them as holding a position of authority. And he's very respectful to these men that God had put in this position of authority over him. He's very respectful. Rulers and elders of the people. Now they had hauled him in there unjustly. And he was suffering unjustly at the hands of authorities who were misusing their authority and abusing their position to cause him suffering. So what does Peter do? Very submissive, very honoring, very respectful toward authority. Does all of that sound familiar? If you were here for 1 Peter chapter 2, do you remember what Peter wrote? He said, submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to those in authority or by those, to those who are sent by the king. And we're to honor the king. And Peter said, by doing right, you silence the foolish talk of ignorant men. Now Peter demonstrates in Acts chapter 4 what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
He's respectful. He's honoring toward authority. Now listen, these are the very men who had crucified his Lord. That's their position. Does the fact that they are misusing their authority negate their authority? No. Peter respectfully submits to them as the rulers and the elders of the people because he knows that God in his providence, in his sovereignty, and by his will has instituted that authority structure and Peter is underneath of it. He's very respectful, very honoring. He doesn't launch into this diatribe about, I have my rights and I want an attorney and you're unjust. He doesn't go off and be bitter. He's not resentful. He's not He's not uh, uh, just unleashing all of this vitriol toward these men who are causing him unjust suffering. He doesn't do any of that. Rulers, elders of the people, very, very respectful. Even to those who are abusing their position of power over him. Second thing I want you to notice about his defense is that it is straightforward. Look what Peter says. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. And just because you're respectful doesn't mean you can't be straightforward. Just because you're respectful doesn't mean you have to backpedal. And just because you're respectful doesn't mean that you cannot be winsome. Listen to what Peter does. If we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, what's he saying? This is a travesty of justice. All we've done is good to this man. And listen, what they did was good all around. It was not only good to the man, because now he can work, now he can walk, now he's in perfect health. It was not only a good thing for the man that they healed, it was a good thing for the temple in general, because they no longer have this beggar who sits at the feet of the beautiful gate begging alms. And not only was it good for the temple, it was also good for everybody who came and went from the temple. Now they don't have to be badgered by this man requesting alms every time they go to worship. There is nothing bad about what they did. And Peter says, you have put us on trial for doing a good deed to this man. They want to know in whose name was the good deed done. Now what's interesting about this is that it's not the miracle really that upsets him, it's the name. You notice that? It's not the miracle that has him up in arms. It's the name in which the miracle was done. If Peter had performed that miracle in any other name, it would have been all right. In the name of Moses, in the name of Abraham, in the name of Isaac, Jacob, Noah, you name the patriarch, any of the prophets. He could have said anybody. He could have even used John the Baptist's name. There's one name that they can't abide. There's one name that they cannot tolerate. It's the name of Christ. In whose name did you make this man well? They can't thank Peter. You would expect them to bring Peter in and say, look, we want to thank you for what you've done for this man. And his family wants to thank you. What you did was good. It was good for the nation, good for the people, good for the temple, good for him, good for his family. Thank you. They can't rejoice in it. Why? They would rather have this man sick at the beautiful gate than walking in the name of Christ. They'd rather have that. They would rather have him crippled than walking in Christ's name. They had their choice. Because they hate the name. You want to know what name? Peter says, I'll give you the name. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now look how he turns the tables on him, huh? What are we on trial for? Good deed done to a sick man. Done in the name of a man that you crucified. See how the tables have been turned? Who is it that should be on trial? Annas and Caiaphas. 
And Peter's saying, we did something good. You've put us on trial, and you're guilty of murder, and you know it. It's you who should be on trial, because you crucified Christ. They knew they had delivered over an innocent man to death. And now they brought in these two unlearned, untrained Galilean fishermen and have them on trial for doing a good deed to a sick man. And Peter says, respectfully and honoringly, he says, we are on trial for doing a deed to a sick man, and you should be on trial because you killed an innocent man. You crucified Christ. But Peter can't mention the crucifixion without also mentioning what? The resurrection. And God raised him up. Now, did they know this? Oh, yeah. Peter gives them two facts that they can't deny. They killed an innocent man, and that innocent man rose from the dead. They can't deny either of that. Matthew chapter 28 tells us that after the resurrection, after the soldiers came back, they reported to whom? The chief priests about the resurrection, right? What happened? And what did they do? They gave them money and said, you start spreading the rumor that the disciples stole the body. Who was it that bribed the soldiers? Annas and Caiaphas and the whole priesthood. They gave that money to the soldiers and said, spread the rumor that the disciples stole the body. These are the very men who are standing there. And Peter says, you know you crucified him. You know he rose again. How do they know it? They paid off the soldiers to cover up the story. Notice that they don't ask the disciples where the body's at. You notice that? They don't bring them in and say, okay, tell us, what did you do with the body? They don't ask them that. Why? They know the disciples don't have the body. They know there's only one explanation for what happened just a few months prior. He's risen. And they tried to shut it up. And they knew the truth about the crucifixion. They knew the truth about the resurrection. And still their hearts are so hardened to the point where even in light of all of that evidence and even in light of being confronted with their culpability in it, they still resist. They still will not turn. And because they crucified Him, and because God raised Him up, that makes them God's enemies. And that's the point of the quotation from Psalm 118, which is in verse 11. Peter says, By this name this man stands before you here in good health, because the cripple is right there. And Peter says, He, that is Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Peter quotes from Psalm 118. It's a familiar passage. It's quoted a few different times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Peter's epistle, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, where Peter argues that Christ is the rock upon which the whole church is built. He is that chosen choice stone which was rejected by everybody else. Now in Psalm 118, as the psalmist writes that, he's not thinking necessarily of the Messiah. He's thinking of the nation of Israel as being that chosen stone. God chose a stone upon which to build His kingdom. It was Israel. Small, worthless in the eyes of men, little, they're just Jews. If you were going to choose a stone upon which to build a kingdom in a nation, nationally speaking, you would choose Rome, Greece, Babylon, Persia, any of the great empires. But God chose what? Abraham, his descendants. Made a nation out of one man. Small nation, powerless, fewer in number than all the rest of the nations of the world. And God chose them. And the psalmist said that choice stone, all of the rest of the builders rejected, all the nations of the world rejected that stone, Israel. 
Jesus quotes Psalm 18 and applies it to himself as being the one whom the rulers of the people rejected. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable, and when he gets done, he quotes Psalm 18 and says, basically, I am the choice stone which you, the builders, rejected. And Matthew 21 verse 45 says that when the Pharisees and the chief priests heard that, they knew that he was talking about them. And they tried to seize him. And here's Peter just several months later giving the same quotation that Christ had given to these same people. And he says, you guys are the ones who rejected God's choice stone, and that choice stone was Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received him night, and you pushed him aside, you rejected him, but he is God's chosen one. And see, they were the builders. These were the religious leaders of their day. They had all of the responsibility and the duty to be about the business of God but they rejected God's plan, they rejected God's person, they rejected God's Messiah. And they cast Him aside. That makes them God's enemies. Now verse 12 is a familiar verse to you. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Peter, this is the conclusion to his message. You see, if Christ is the Messiah, if He is the crucified one, if He is risen again, if He is God's choice stone, then there's only one conclusion that you can draw from that. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. They hate that name. But Peter says you've rejected that name and you're outside of God's plan of salvation. You, by rejecting that name, have alienated yourself from the only path, the only person, and the only Savior. There's only one way of salvation. Now that is as clear of a statement of the exclusiveness of the Christian faith as you will ever read in the New Testament. It's not the only statement on the exclusiveness of the Christian faith. John 3, verse 36, John says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except by me. There are not many roads to God, there's only one road to God. There are not many paths that all equal the one God. There are not many train tracks that you can take to the big station in the sky. It's none of that. If you are outside of Christ, you are inside of hell. That's it. Because there is only one Savior. There is only salvation in one name. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one substitute. There's only one blood. There's only one atonement. There's only one person. And it's Christ. And it doesn't matter how sincere you are as a Muslim, as a Hindu, as a Buddhist, as a Jehovah's Witness, as a Roman Catholic, it doesn't matter how sincere you are in your belief in a God, if you're outside of Christ, you're outside of salvation. It's exclusive. And listen, that doesn't go over well in our day, does it? There was a day in which you could, you could say that without really being cast aside or have aspersions cast at you, but you can't say that today because we live in an inclusive world. We're all one. There are many ways, there are many paths, and they all lead there, and we all worship the same God. And we're all there together, and we're all going to end up in, on the other side of the river in the great paradise in the sky, and nobody's going to perish, and nobody's going to die. And That's the day in which we live. But you and I are called to proclaim an exclusive message in an inclusive age. This is the message that your friends, your family, and your co-workers have to, t- to come to grips with. There is salvation in no one else. And they need to hear that. And you need to tell them that. I know you may go to church. I know you may think you're good. I know you may think that all of these things 
can present you to God as somehow honorable or savable or good in His sight, but it doesn't. Because if you're not found in Christ, you'll be found in hell. That's the only two choices. It's an exclusive message. Now I ask you, is that the message that you're proclaiming? And you're telling your friends, your families, and your co-workers about it? But more importantly, is that the message that you've embraced? Or are you still trusting in someone or something else to save you? If you think that at the end of time you're going to stand before God and He's going to look at all the good things that you've done, He's going to say, surely you did your level best. I'll let you in. That's not how it works. That's trusting in you. You see, the text doesn't say there's two names under heaven by which we must be saved, Christ's and mine. It doesn't say that. Peter says, unless you are trusting completely, solely, only, fully on Christ and what He has done on your behalf, unless that is where all of your belief, all of your faith, and all of your hope for salvation rests, you're lost. It's not Christ plus baptism, Christ plus giving, Christ plus good works, Christ plus this and that and the other thing, Christ plus whatever I can do to contribute to it. All of that is rubbish. It's Christ alone or no Christ at all. Because He will not take competitors. And so I ask you, is that the message that you've embraced? Or are you still trusting in someone or something else to help get you there? Christ doesn't need your help, thanks. It's best if you and I just get completely out of the Savior business, declare spiritual bankruptcy, and trust in the One whose account has enough to get us past the gates of heaven. And that's Christ and Christ alone. Scripture says that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And that is all on the basis of faith, not by works. And if you don't know that Christ is your Savior today, and if you have never trusted in Christ, then I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God and to come to Him by faith today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that there is salvation in no other name. I thank You most of all that You chose us, You loved us, You sent Your Son to die for us, and You gave us that salvation. It was a free gift. And if it were not for the work of Your Spirit, Your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, we would certainly have perished having never known salvation and having never known Christ. We were lost and we thank You that You sent us a Savior. And we thank You, Father, that You've opened our eyes and called us to that kingdom which is of light and of Christ and called us out of darkness. All the glory goes to You because You have done all of that for us in Jesus Christ. And we thank You in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.